Hey everyone, and welcome back to The Scientist Podcast. This is part two of my conversation with Dr. Jen Heemstra. This part of the discussion focuses on inclusion, adversity, and medical ethics. The research you produce is only as good as the way you communicate it. Scientist Studio is an exciting science communication company that brings your research to life through a variety of services. From as little as £59, a summary of your work can be narrated, illustrated, and animated leaving you with an engaging video to share with the world. If that wasn't enough, as a podcast listener, you can get 10% off any Scientist Studio service using the code PODCAST when you order. Simply head to our website or find us on Twitter to get started. You spoke about inclusion there. Science clearly, historically, has been uninclusive, and my perception is that it's getting better. Where is it in your view and how much is left to go? Oh, there's so much left to go. Um, but it is getting better. It's, you know, it, I think it's, it's different in different places. It's hard to say it's getting better because you can take someone from a place that's doing this, you know, reasonably well and is pretty progressive. And then if they move groups or move institutions, you know, while on the whole as a bulk, it's, it's getting better. It's still very heterogeneous. And I think that as people move through the system and through time, you know, you can definitely have kind of ups and downs. And so, you know, as a woman in chemistry um, at my level, you know, in the U.S., there's it's like 17 percent women. Um, but I also recognize that I so I have some struggles there. But I also recognize I have a lot of privilege because I'm white and it's, you know, way, way more challenging um, for people of color and especially for women of color. Um, and, and so, but even just in my trajectory of kind of struggling with gender inequity, yeah, it's definitely, I see a lot of things that I can point to where I say, oh yes, this has gotten better. Um, you know, like parental leave policies and for women being able to have, you know, it's a lot more normalized now to have kids before tenure. Um, and there's, you know, things like departments tend to not have seminars at like eight o'clock at night now, you know, they're a little bit more on like family friendly hours. Um, <coughs> But at the same time, as you move through, yeah, it's just heterogeneous. And it's like, you know, all of these, this roller coaster of ups and downs. Sometimes it's really great. And I don't feel like there's a lot of challenges. And then sometimes the challenges just feel really, really crushing. Like, you know, sitting on my couch at 3 a.m. crying, Mm -hmm. crushing. (laughs) So, yeah. Yeah, you've written a little bit about sort of the day of your PhD defense. And kind of that, to me, when I read it, it sounds like sort of the caricature of a challenge of being a woman in chemistry. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, that was a really challenging thing, but that turned out absolutely for the best for me in so many ways. It's kind of, you know, you talked a little bit about this, this topic of adversity and, you know, I've, I've benefited from a lot of privilege and really great mentors that have made it this way for me. But at all of the different times in my life that I've faced, you know, really significant adversity, there's been people there for me to help me through it. And then as a result, that's what's made me who I am now, um, especially some really severe adversity in my childhood that kind of made me a scientist and made me really resilient and and really driven and really tough and and it you know, kind of instilled in me a lot of these characteristics that I see now and it's it's a little bit of a struggle actually now as a parent because I'm like well I don't want my kids to go through adversity just so that they can be like 
you know, more resilient, but, but then I also see the ways in which it, it really has shaped me. And, and that was definitely one of those events. So yeah, the morning of my thesis defense, I had a postdoc lined up and uh, the, my kind of putative postdoc advisor is someone I never worked for. So I never want people, I had a great actual postdoc advisor. So I never want people to think it was that person. It wasn't David Liu. He was amazing as a postdoc advisor. But another uh, person who I was supposed to work for called me up. And this is, um, gosh, like 2005. So like no smartphones, right? So he called me on like a phone with like, you know, a spirally cord, like in the middle of lab. And I'm standing in the middle of lab, you know, two hours before my defense or something like that. And he tells me, he says, you know, I've been thinking about it. You know, I made you an offer. Um, you might guess everyone in his lab was a man at this point. Um, but he said, you know, I made you this offer and I think you're really great. But I'm really worried that you might get pregnant. And, and you know, then in our field of organic chemistry, you know, at the time, I mean, I actually worked through a pregnancy in a lab later with my amazing postdoc mentor. But he said, I don't, you know, you wouldn't be able to work in lab and I just can't take the risk that you would get pregnant and, and be out of lab for nine months. I just, I, I'm sorry, I can't take that risk. And so I'm going to have to withdraw my postdoc offer. And that was, I mean, I'm just like bawling, right? Like I'm a crier and I don't even apologize for anymore, but I was just like bawling in the middle of lab because it was not, when I picked up the phone and he was like, oh, hey, how's it going? I was like, yeah, it's the, my defense date. And he was like, I know that's great. And I'm thinking like, oh, you want to talk to me about like, let's talk science, right? Just wanted to say congratulations or whatever. And what I got instead was, hey, um, you now don't have a job and you need to figure out what you're going to do. And it's the day of your defense, right? Um, and that was, yeah, it was, it was really, really crushing. And it was probably one of the, it's right at the end of grad school, of course. And, and it, it was probably one of the first times that it, I'd heard kind of it's tough for women in chemistry or in STEM. And I'd seen little things, but it was the first time that it probably like something really, really big landed where I was like, wow, being a woman has actually like really cost me something, but it actually didn't because not working for that person is the best thing I ever did. If I would worked for them, I would probably hate science now. I would have been so burned out. Um, they wouldn't, you know, the thing I learned, I learned two things. I learned if someone doesn't care about your future, if they don't care about you as a person, they aren't worth your effort like if you really care about science i tell people in my group this like if you really care about science and you're working hard your advisor owes you not the other way around like to me it's like every person who comes through my group and graduates it's like it's my job you know i owe them for the amazing work they do and it's my job to spend their whole rest of their careers you know their time in my lab too but especially the rest of their careers kind of trying to pay that back and and pay it forward in ways that i can you just continue supporting them and helping them in their careers. And so I was like, oh, this person actually doesn't, um, you know, they're not entitled to it. They're not good enough. Like they don't deserve that two to three years of my time. I would have been giving my time and my effort to someone who doesn't deserve it because they don't care about my future. Um, and the other thing I learned was a great lesson in advocacy. And this was from my PhD advisor. So my PhD advisor, um, Jeff Moore handled this and I cannot think of a better way to have handled this. Um, I walked into his office, and I was obviously crying and he saw me and he like closed his door. And, um, and I think he kind of knew it was happening because he had tried to stop this person from doing this. And, uh, and I told him and he got really angry, um, which is again, an appropriate response to be like, that is ridiculous. And you kind of need to hear that. Um, but then he said what he said, this is the most amazing advocacy. He said, we are going to make this work out for you. He said, we can't 
stand here and tell you that you can like have this academic career as a woman and that, you know, if you wanted to, you could even have a family. Well, it turned out like we had infertility and then we couldn't even have kids anyways. And that was a whole other thing. But in that moment, he was like, we can't tell you that you can have this career and then not provide a path for you to have that. So he said, we are going to make a path if this is what you want. If you want to do a postdoc, we're going to make that work. Um, And actually at my um, PhD defense, he talked to my committee and I actually came out of my defense with a postdoc offer. Um, But then I actually, I also had an industry offer. And so I thought, well, you know, maybe, you know, I kind of consider both. It was actually a really, really hard decision because they both would have been great places. Um, But I kind of said, you know, hey, I've never worked in industry. It's It'd be interesting to see what that's like. And I went and worked there for a couple of years, but then, uh, but then I did, you know, eventually set up. And he also had then helped me, you know, set up my, what ended up being my real postdoc with David Liu. So yeah, it was just a great lesson in, in so many ways. Speaking in 2020, it's scarcely believable that that's something that could be happily done. The idea that he could sort of pick up the phone and say, well, you know, you're great, but actually the risk isn't worth managing. That's sort of scarcely believable. Did it affect your performance, quote unquote, in the PhD defense? You know, I'll say probably not. I think I, I bounced. It's hard to know, right? Um, I think I bounced back and recovered. And I was someone who maybe these days it would have, but I'm someone who can kind of, I get so excited about the science that once I start talking about the science, it's like, okay, whatever I was upset about. Like, <laughs> that's actually how I get over grant rejections is I like, I like mourn for a day. And I get really upset and I go like climbing something that makes me feel better. And then the yeah. next day I come in and make sure, okay, I'm going to get together with people in my lab. We're going to talk science. And then I get so excited about what's coming next that like everything else kind of goes away for a little bit. Um, you know, I think it hit me again later, but, but in my defense, yeah, I got super excited about the science and actually something kind of embarrassing, but also probably good to admit is at that point in my career, I mean, even to this day, public speaking makes me nervous. Being on podcasts makes me nervous. Um, you know, I always just get, you know, I think we all get nervous about public speaking. And at that point in my career, my solution to that was to just rehearse like an crazy number of times. And so I probably rehearsed my PhD defense, like at least a hundred times when I went out for faculty jobs, like, and I would give my, my job talk seminar, which was part of my defense too. Like it was to the point that like at a school, I'd be like, oh, Afterwards, I'd be like, oh, I said that one word different than that word in a 15 wow. minute, you know, 10,000 word seminar, or 20,000 word seminar. Yeah. And so I would over rehearse because that was just my way of dealing with it. So I think I just went into autopilot. But the one thing that did happen, um, I will admit at my PhD defense is I, I rehearsed it. And so up to that point, I was just like chugging along, right? Like I was going along and like everything was like super rehearsed and super perfect. And then I got to my conclusions and I totally froze up and stumbled. Um, and then I kind of like mangled some words. And then I like hit my acknowledgements and kept going. But what happened? And my PhD advisor noticed this. He was, I told him, and he was like, oh, I did kind of notice. He's like, I didn't judge you for it, but I noticed. And what happened is that my conclusion slide, I actually let myself in the back of my brain for a second think, oh my goodness, this is it. Like I'm getting a PhD. Like I never even imagined that I could ever be a scientist. You know, I didn't know if I could ever go to college. I definitely never thought I could go to grad school. And like, and I've worked so hard and oh my goodness, I'm getting a PhD. This is crazy. Yeah. And, uh, and, and it just like totally took my attention away. And I was like, 
oh yeah, and um, Foldemers do great stuff. And then I kind of like picked up the script as my acknowledgement. <laughs> well, this is the problem with over-rehearsing. I, I've run into this as well, is when over-rehearsing is great, as long as you don't miss a beat. But as soon as you do, you're off the horse. Now you need to sort of cl- clamber back on top of the horse. And that's easier said than done. Yeah, and you also leave yourself that like mental space of like, oh, I'm at the conclusions. I've rehearsed this. And so you have that back part of your brain that's thinking things like letting yourself think like, oh my goodness, I'm getting a PhD instead of like saving that for like either before or after. Um, but yeah, that's, that's, you know, I think everyone has kind of a funny PhD story. That's probably one of my, also one of my, I won't, I won't say who, but one of my committee members literally fell asleep in my defense. So maybe it was very rehearsed. I don't know. Yeah, yeah it's dark. It's after lunch. It's, it's tough, but yeah. I mean, I love the idea of it being after lunch, being a justification for falling asleep. That's like the most generous interpretation. <laughs> um, so you know, you then want... they couldn't ask me hard questions. I was, you know, sometimes <laughs> I'd bring snacks to meetings because I'd be like, people who have their mouths full don't ask hard questions, right? It's a now I embrace true. hard questions. <laughs> um, so you basically, you effectively had the PhD meeting, left the room with an offer, but then decided to go into industry instead. What did that look like? Yeah, so I, I left the room, yeah, with, with kind of a not, yeah, kind of a soft offer, right? As it often works, right? Like, a, you know, postdoc offers, like, you know, in academia, this is almost like, it's kind of an old school thing that like, in some ways is kind of endearing, but also drives a lot of the toxicity that we don't have like HR, you know, eventually you get an offer and it's like, you're hired as a staff person, but often starts as just, yeah, this kind of like, oh, hey, yeah, you could come work for me if you want. Um, so I had not like a written offer, but like, a, yeah, you know, I, I'd be happy to take you. And so, you know, I took that and I wanted to think about it because I also had, um, you know, my spouse was also at you know, the same location. And so we had this kind of two body, you know, challenge or whatever. Some people are like, oh, it's a two body opportunity. And I'm like, no, um, you know, we had this two body situation. And, and so I wanted to think about, you know, well, what would that look like to do a postdoc for two years? And then, you know, and then we both need to find, you know, that wouldn't be enough for me. I'd have to do another postdoc still. So even if I did this, it wouldn't be like a postdoc that I could probably use to get, you know, a job. Um, and so I, I took that and I talked to a professor. It was really, really interesting research, someone who I, I really respect a lot and, and enjoy spending time with. And it would have been a great experience. Um, but at the same time, yeah, I saw an advertisement for an industry job in the town where we were living. And I thought, well, that's kind of, you know, interesting as well. Like I, I knew I wanted to go into academia, but I thought it was impossible. I thought there's no way I could ever do this. So I thought, well, then I'll do industry instead Um, that, you know, nothing against academia being better than industry. It was just like, I really wanted academia, but for a lot of reasons thought it was unattainable, largely because there weren't a lot of people who had done what I wanted to do. Um, And who, well, yeah, I I just had all this self-doubt. And then later I had a baby before during my postdoc. And then I was like, oh, I know very few people have had a baby before starting this job. And so there were all these challenges. So I thought, well, you know, like industry sounds fun. Like, let's go try it out. Let's see if mm. I like this or not. Um, so yeah, so I interviewed and, um, you know, the pay was probably pretty comparable at both places. So that was not a driver. Um, you know, I will say that I, maybe part of it is that I also realized um, there, there's kind of a lesson here and it was on me. Like I pushed myself really, I always push myself really, really, really hard because it's fun. It's fun to see what I'm capable of. But I would say finishing my, my PhD, I had a pretty rough, rough last year of my PhD. And again, nothing to do with my advisor. I, I actually had my experiments work really well. So after like the first three years, I was like, oh, I, you know, he's like, you have enough for a defense, but like I had this fellowship. So, and he was like, and your spouse is here, right? So you're, you got no reason to leave. Like, 
stay and just use this fellowship and do some crazy thing that probably won't work, but it'd be amazing if it did. And that would have been fun. Um, nothing worked. And it was like every day, just like, you know, being like, oh, I'm going to throw everything in the waste bin and go home and realize that I could have made the same amount of progress if I just sat on my couch and watched MTV all day, right? It was a little bit of a beat down, but I was still having fun. But then I had a lot of tragedy in my life that year. I, I lost my dad and I lost my best friend and a lot of other people, uh, family and friends. And so I think at the end of my PhD, I was a little emotionally ragged. Um, I've been pushing myself so hard. And so despite my advisor being tremendous, I was, I was pretty burned out. And so I think it was, it, there was a little bit of something that sounded really nice about like a nine to five job of, you know, not that a postdoc shouldn't be, but often it's not. Um, and just this idea of like, oh, I can go to this place and it will be like a definitively like nine to five sort of job. Not all industry jobs are either, but this one was. Um, and, and so that sounded kind of nice as well. And that's, you know, maybe I just a note of like taking a breather. Like I took a breather after undergrad as well. I took four months and just went and lived in a ski town and did nothing but hang out and snowboard. And I guess I finished my like undergrad thesis or something, but, um, but just having those times, you know, my spouse and I took four months off between um, that job and our postdocs. And we just traveled all around the country. And, and it's something I think is, you know, maybe better appreciated in Europe, but not, not in all places is it really appreciated to just, you know, it's possible. You can't take like a real long one because our academic system should provide more flexibility, but doesn't. But taking those little breathers is, is really, really helpful. Yeah, especially if you've been pushing yourself so hard, your sort of emotional immune system, so to speak, is just lower. So, I mean, that's an immense amount of tragedy at any time but especially in the context of, you know, the back end of a four-year PhD cycle. And even though you've got enough for a defense, it can't be fun to throw away everything at the end of the day, right? So Yes, and I love that, what you just said, emotional immune system. What a phenomenal way to think about it of, you know, yeah, just that, you know, your immune system, yeah, protects you against threats and you can deal with threats when it's healthy, but when it's compromised, anything can come at you and get you get you and I've never thought about that way and I just want to say thank you that's really cool well it's interesting it's like you catch yourself right like something that wouldn't usually make you cry at least in my case will make me cry and I go hang on something I didn't necessarily realize something was up but this is a good indication that the quote-unquote emotional immune system is low because that sweet moment or that slightly pathos inducing moment wouldn't normally invoke this kind of reaction that's brilliant Oh my goodness, I love that. <laughs> um, I'm going to share that with my group now, if that's okay. That's, well, I'm, I'm massively flattered. And then it's interesting, I mean, just one more point on this. I think in the States, there is stronger emphasis on go, 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 typically type A. I, think, I mean, academia, the way I think of it, is sort of like the most that way in any context. So the idea of sort of a further education position or a research position in the States, to me, feels like the epicenter of oof, a break, I don't know. Yes. And I don't, um, I don't know that that makes for better research. I think it almost certainly doesn't make for better research. I think we all need breaks and, you know, kind of academia has this somewhat archaic, but still somewhat real, you know, sabbatical system for faculty, which is based on this idea of, yeah, like every seven years, you should just take a break from the go, go, go and like, let your mind just rest and just think and learn new things and go and play and be creative and and even to a large extent those have gone away um but i think also are yeah it's not the best way to do research 
but it's what our the way our system is set up right now it selects for that in a lot of ways and that's something I think we always need to be pushing back on. So wherever we can, you know, in admissions and hiring committees and things like that, you know, pushing back on that, because I think that there is so much to be gained from taking time, you know, taking time off for yourself or just taking time off to explore different careers. You know, I actually love the, the very first grad student who joined our lab. I think I could tell a little bit of his story. Um, he, uh, yeah, he joined our lab. It was like massively successful. And now he's in a fantastic position at a government lab and working his way up towards, you know, eventually, I'm sure being a, a group leader and all of that. He was, he was a postdoc at Stanford, wildly successful. And his story was, yeah, he finished, you know, high school and went to college briefly and, and wasn't really sure what he wanted to do. And so he left and he went and became an electrician. And then he started his own company um, and then he did that for a while and then realized, you know, I'm, I, I want to take a break from this. And he was a rock climber and a snowboarder. So he started just touring the whole country um, to go rock climbing and snowboarding and, and have some fun. And, you know, this was when we were uh, in our lab at Utah. And so he said, yeah, I was on my way to Yosemite and I drove through Salt Lake City and I just never left. Um, and he actually worked at like a climbing hold company in town and, and I'm a climber as well. So I'm like, oh yeah, I know those people. And I know those, people. it's just really, you know, we had a lot of good chats about climbing as well. Um, and then, yeah, over time he kind of said, oh, I think I want to go back to school. And I think I like chemistry. Um, so he went back and started community college and got his degree and then came and got his PhD and was just so immensely, immensely successful as a PhD student and so immensely successful as a postdoc and now so successful in his career. And a lot of that, you know, I'll just give him credit. He's a phenomenal person, just an incredibly high capacity person. But also, um, you know, I, I think it's fair to say that taking that time and taking that path can really, you know, there's something you said for coming to grad school and knowing exactly why you want to be there. You knowing exact, it's really easy to just go straight from undergrad into a PhD and not really stop to think about why do I want a PhD? Um, whereas if you've had like some life experience, he also like rewired like every instrument we had in the lab because he like had all this great electrical knowledge. He's like, oh, I can take this <laughs> instrument and I can rig it so that it will do this instead of this and, and also this. And I'm like, okay, cool. But like, make sure you like undo it before you leave because no yeah. one else will know how to do this. Um, and yeah, and just having that, that life experience, that maturity, I think it made me way better in my postdoc and, and even grad school that I'd taken these times off too. They were shorter, but you know, when I went to grad school, I was like, I know why I want to be here. I'm really hungry. I'm really driven. I want to make the most of this and I'm just going to go for it. And some people can go straight through and be like that, but often, yeah, having those times off or those non-traditional paths, um, we shouldn't even call it non-traditional. It should just be traditional to kind of you know, do other things and, and learn. Other, and actually, one of the books I'm reading right now is David Epstein's Range. And he makes exactly this case that the people who are the most creative and the most successful over the long haul are the people who have not taken a straight line. Because it's all about as you go through all of these different stops on your career, you're picking up knowledge and you're picking up experiences and ways of thinking about things. And that's what's eventually going to lead to, you know, circling back to how you have ideas. It's when you most brilliant ideas are when people bring together different things, a different need with a different way of addressing it with a different you know, technology in ways that nobody else is seeing. And it's really hard to do that if you've just kind of had this straight line, you know.
Yeah, a common criticism of sort of actors when they audition is, well, and not, not enough life experience came through there. And given the almost unique rigors of academia in terms of the pro the incentives and the competition and what's demanded of you, it's no surprise that having a little bit of life experience outside that can help equip you for A, the rigors of academia, but also it's all about originality and creativity and ideas. Just to combine sort of something from earlier with just now, maybe every seven years, uh, professors should get sort of an experimental year. You know, all this experimental open-ended research should be plugged in every sort of seven years and we call it a year off, but really you're trying to change the scientific paradigms. Oh my goodness, that'd be amazing, right? It's just, yeah, a year, we're gonna give you money, just do whatever you want and, and have fun. That would be truly, truly amazing. I would love that. Have you seen um, Free Solo, the documentary? Oh yes. It's uh, the scariest thing I've ever seen. Oh, it's terrifying, but it's so, so, so good. And yeah, and, and actually, if you haven't seen it, the John Wall movie is also really, really good. And there's a lot in there actually about adversity and what Tommy Caldwell says about adversity um, resonated so strongly with me as I watch it. And he went through a way bigger adversity than I've ever been through. And the way that that um, motivated him and the, the way he kind of said like, it made me realize that I was stronger than I ever thought I was. And it made me realize I'm capable of things that I never thought possible. And the way that that just, you know, kind of fueled him. I know, again, not everyone has the opportunity to turn adversity into that, but whenever we can, it, it can be really powerful. Um, to tie that back into RNA, I have some vague idea that sort of DNA sequencing and RNA sequencing can sort of change us in real time, sort of in our epigenetics, etc. Is there any ambition to sort of make Alex Honnold's whole, like, can you turn me into a climber? Is that sort of where we're headed in the long term? Oh my goodness. I just have to say that how much I love that you just took Alex Honnold and Tommy Caldwell and the Donwell and Free Solo and segued that back to RNA. That was absolutely brilliant. And gosh, that's a good question. I, I think, um, you know, there's probably a lot that we will be able to do, but shouldn't do. You know, that's the, the big conversation right now. And it's, it's a little bit scary how fast those norms are changing. Right, you know, five years ago, if you would if you had talked about editing people's genomes, we'd all probably be like, wait, maybe we shouldn't be doing. You know, when when CRISPR first came out, we were like, oh my goodness, we shouldn't be doing this in humans, right? Like, people got in a lot of trouble for doing that, and now that's just a you know multi billion dollar venture capital thing, right? To to make that exact goal possible. And so, so I look at it and I see, yeah, our norms and our values are changing really, really rapidly. And, and, and in fact, before I became a chemist, actually my, my thing I was gonna do was become a bioethics lawyer. Um, and this is back in 1996 when we were like, the big question was like, we're sequencing the human genome and we're gonna have all this information. What are we gonna do with it? And the movie Gattaca came out, which is like one of my favorite kind of science movies because it was just so, it was science fiction. But it, if you watch it now, you're like, wow, this is, terrifyingly on point for like the 1990s and the human genome project um, and now yeah we're seeing all of those things come to fruition and there's so much yeah we will be able to do and we shouldn't do but then also i think there's probably things you know to what extent you know alex Arnold, yeah he has like a very unreactive amygdala so could you if you did that to some other person would they would they still be able to accomplish these things 
or, you know, is there some, you know, some combination of biology and life experience and environment that just makes it impossible to replicate any of these things? Right. To which degree could you take one variable, change it and see that play out in a changed behavior? When I think about bioethics or medical ethics, there's this principle kind of of do no harm as a first and foremost principle. But in some way, it seems like you need to trade that off against well, let's be ambitious and experimental to make real differences. Is that kind of the, the juggling act as you see it? That's one of them. Um, I'll also channel, you know, I took this bioethics class. And it was one of the, my favorite, favorite classes I ever took. Because actually as a scientist, I really love writing as well. Um, and that's been an interesting thing I figured out during my career. Um, but in this bioethics class, one of the big points they made is that there's also this argument of, the good for one person versus the good of the whole. And I'll, you know, everyone's like a professor who says something you never forget. And I'll never forget the analogy he used, right? He said, you know, you could have two people in a hospital and you know, one person in one room needs a kidney transplant and the person in the room next to them is there to, you know, because they have a broken leg, right? If you are all about the good of the whole, you say, well, this person needs a kidney. Well, this person's got two and they only need one. And you just, you know, for the person open, take the kidney, put it in the other person. Obviously, it's like a reductionist. There's a lot of like biological things. But, you know, but it was like that illustration of like, oh, my goodness, that's obviously wrong. You know, it's not. He was trying to, you know, I think we often think of things as well. The ethical thing is just the thing that's the best for all of the people. And he, he was trying to really what he illustrated is that there is this tension. And. But at the same time, you, you know, if we only thought about what's best for individuals, we would have no laws in society and it, it would be a, a mess. I mean, actually, that's what we're seeing right now with people not wearing masks and the individual freedoms that actually then restrict our freedoms and are bad for the whole. And so, yeah, that's one of, I think, the big balancing acts as we think about, you know, some of these therapies, the gene editing could be really, really good, you know, life changing for small numbers of people who have these really devastating diseases. Um, but then it also opens up some potentially really harmful things to the entire population that could come about from that technology advancing. Yeah, I love the analogy. That kind of shape of analogy is like one of the big criticisms, I guess, of so the utilitarian ethics, this idea that the most good for the most people is the best. I mean, the sort of extension of the analogy is if you had five people all of whom needed different organs, and you had a healthy 25-year-old come in for a checkup. I mean, if you really could save all five lives by distributing that person's organs, you're tempted if you're taking really the utilitarian yeah. hardline to say yes. Um, one really nice workaround I like here is that you can just attach negative utility to certain actions. So you say, well, it is about the greater good, but the greater good is worse off if we're chopping up that one person, because who wants to live in a society where we chop up that one person? Yes. Oh, that's a really great extension of it. Yeah. And you're, you're exactly right that it's often people, I mean, I think it just gets at that these are really, really complicated things with no answers. And, um, you know, another quote I love is that the closer you are to a situation, the more complex you realize it is, right? It's easy to be far away and be like, oh, we can just solve this, right? Like, oh, the greater good, the most good for the most people. But then the more you come to know about it, you're like, oh, actually there's, it, there's no easy answers. And, and I think that's what our professor was trying to, because I think, yeah, we all came in there as like, 
oh yeah, of course, it's just the greater good. And he was like, haha, but then we could do this. And we were all like, oh my goodness. Um, and you know, that's a good professor too. That, that class was goodness, 22 years ago. And I still remember that story to this day. It's such an elegant way of putting that to a group of students. I mean, that's a brilliant analogy to kind of demonstrate, well, greater good isn't so easy because that doesn't really feel like the greater good all of a sudden. That has been so much fun. Thank you so much for doing that with us. Thank you. You've been listening to The Scientist Podcast. Thank you so much for being with us and we'll see you next week.